Many things I did and I saw were an encouragement to my understanding of the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. And yet there was also disappointment and delusion. But that was in the commercialism and sadness of what I saw and heard. When I first spoke of having a sabbatical, going to the Holy Land didn't even cross my radar. It was Roy who suggested it, and I knew straight away that it was the right thing to do. But how should I go about it? How should I approach it? I contacted several people from the Baptist Missionary Society, including the former director recently retired. He revised, I read several books, and tried to go on a tour with a specialist group. Sadly, there were no people going October, November. However, I was put in touch with a regional minister who was taking Baptist ministers on a tour, visiting many of Israel's Baptist churches in the hope of twinning with them. At a deacon's meeting, I brought up the possibility of returning with having twinned us with a church in Israel. And I sought their counsel. In general, it was received well, as long as no political bias was their main objective. I have to say, in all the churches I visited, which must be about eight, it was their desire for Jesus to be worshipped, honoured and adored, was their main purpose. There was a hunger for knowing Jesus, in sharing Jesus with others, in serving Jesus in their community, often despite opposition from Muslims or the Greek Orthodox. It was refreshing and exciting. Most churches had teens, 20s or 30s in their congregations who worshipped God with passion and excitement. There were many who played instruments and a variety of them too. But I'm getting ahead of myself. On October the 4th, I met with my new friends at Gatwick Airport. Stuart, the regional minister, had advised us that he would be wearing a white baseball cap and that he had one for the rest of us. Didn't seem like a good start. But it was obvious who he was, and in typical Baptist sense, we gathered. And in typical Baptist sense and nature, some rebelled and refrained from wearing one. I was one of them. This photo was taken outside Nazareth Nazareth Baptist School. It's adjacent to Nazareth Baptist Church. It's run as a Christian school by Arab Palestinians. Where Christian teaching is given to many outside the Christian faith. You see, they send their children to this school. It opened in 1935 and reopened in 1948 after the war. There are 996 pupils from kindergarten to year 11. There are 72 teachers. It is rated the fourth in the country. Most of the teachers were former pupils themselves, and they could easily earn double if they did not live in the West Bank. 60% of the fees are funded by the government. 1,200 by the parents. They are taught Arabic, Hebrew, and English. Now, as I was given a holistic approach to the Holy Land, 
my presentation over the next two weeks will reflect this. And not just a load of tourist photographs, but of course there will be many to see. The regional minister is a gentleman on the right in a light-coloured jacket. His name is Stuart, and I've got to be honest, he and I really got on well together. This was the first place we stayed at, Villa Nazareth. And the only reason why I've included this is that Stuart and I got locked out one evening. We decided to go for a late walk, only to find the gate closed at about 11.30 at night. And although you can't gauge it, the wall where the lampposts are was about 12 foot off the ground. And I just had to climb it, walk along it, and then go down the door for us to get in. We just had visions of going to the hospital two hours away and uh, getting arrested for breaking in, you know, which wasn't a good start. But nevertheless, we got away with it. So my tour began in Nazareth. Bill, Terry, do I still need to move? You're okay. It was Nathaniel who asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? To which Philip replied, come and see. Now, there are several reasons why he said this. Some put it down to village rivalry, just like Portsmouth and Southampton are. So Nazareth, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Bethsaida. But it's generally believed that because at the time of Jesus' time, only about 200 lived in Nazareth. So the question was, can anything good come from 200 people? We visited Nazareth Bible College. Now, that's a 10-minute walk from a hotel, which doesn't sound much. But if you've been to Nazareth, in fact, parts of the Holy Land, it's up and down and up and down. Many were out of breath when we arrived after this climb. This is the first time I experienced the true political issues as Arab Palestinians feel they're ignored. who are telling us they can't build new villages. They're not allowed to. If they want to extend their house, they can't build out. They can only build up. But there's always two sides to a coin, and there are reasons for that. Now, in Nazareth, is a very special place called Nazareth Village. At the top, you can see a hospital. It's a Scottish-run hospital. Now, the land before them, in front of it, was just barren, empty land. And some of the trustees felt that they could create a first-century Nazareth village. And it's such an exciting place, because you actually see what Israel or Nazareth would have been like in Jesus' time. Volunteers come and work the land. I found it an incredibly powerful place. The land had been derelict for quite some time and they started to clear it away and build areas of shepherd pen. And then the land, the soil, the hardness of the soil. And I did get three photographs, which you're not seeing this morning, of the parable of the sower, where you can see how difficult it could be to grow things. And yet there was an incredible amount of bounty there. Those cauliflowers were literally that big. And yet, looking at the ground that you saw before, how would you expect something to grow there? That's my experience of Israel. God is blessing that nation, that land. Pomegranates were that size. It's just amazing. Every year, an increase of 25,000 people come to this place. And this year, I believe, 
250,000 came to see it. I have to say it's a must for any pilgrim. Mary's well. Apparently this is where the angel appeared to Mary. At the well and also possibly at the house. It's dried up. Nothing really to say about it other than the fact I could have stood where an angel stood. We stayed in Nazareth for three nights, traveling to various sites, and only visited the Church of the Annunciation on our last day, although we walked past it on several occasions. It is said to be built upon Mary's house. Just around the corner, in a covered market, a souk, is a synagogue. As with most biblical places, they're down many steps and underneath other buildings. Luke 4 records in, eight, in verses 18 to 19, where Jesus picked up the scroll and read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was where it was read. This is where Jesus was. And it's even possible that the floor is the original floor. And I could have stood where Jesus read that scripture. It was a powerful and moving experience. But sadly, many would not even know its existence. It was unassuming rather than a statement of Mary's birth. We also travelled to the Mount of Precipitation, about two miles from the centre of Nazareth. The photograph was actually taken from it, so it's difficult to really give you an idea of what it was like. In Luke 4, we read of the crowd rejecting Jesus and wanting to push him from the mountain, but he slips through the crowd. The vast expanse that you see there is where Armageddon is predicted to take place. One of our first visits was to Cana. That morning fortunately coincided with a Baptist minister's breakfast. Sadly, we could not join them, but we relished in the fellowship together. Cana, or as we would known it, Cana, is where the first miracle took place at a wedding. And it was here that I learned that the water jars used were actually finger-washing jars. Not just jars of water for consumption. You'll see some pictures of them in this church. Up on the wall. Cana has a population of 24,000, of which 21,000 are Muslim. The church here has recently doubled in size with a new floor put in. The pastor lives on the first floor. Again, youth groups are incredibly strong here. Over 135 teenagers attended a youth camp in the summer. The pastor of this church, the gentleman in the middle, which is a bit dark, I know, is personally supported by English churches.
So we left Nazareth, a heavily populated town of 80,000, and set for Jericho, a distance of about 75 miles. Now we are known as England's oldest inhabited town, going back 7,000 years. But Jericho beats us by 3,000 years. 10,000 years old. I have to say it's not a place I would like to live. The temperature was about 10 degrees hotter than in Nazareth. En route, we stopped at the Mount of Trepidation. Sorry, the Mount of Temptation. Where Jesus was tempted by Satan. And like many places, it's difficult to make it out, but that's a monastery up in the mountains. I think you, perhaps like me, would have thought Jericho was a great big, massive place. It may have been, but what remains of it now is an area of land probably about twice the size of our car park and church. And sadly, the audiovisual that they show you clearly states that the walls did not tumble. How they know that, I don't know. But we see, we're looking at ruins where buildings have been built on. Now Jericho is mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We hear of Joshua in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Luke 19 tells us of Jesus entering Jericho, where a chief tax collector called Zacchaeus wanted to meet him. But being a short man, he climbed a sycamore tree. Now, while we were away, we stayed in guest houses mainly, but uh, for some reason, <coughs> we had to stay in Jericho for an evening. And we had luxury. Normally the guest houses were quite basic, but this was a five-star hotel with three pools and like your typical holiday place. But Jericho is part of the West Bank. We weren't allowed to tell people when we arrived in Israel that we were staying in Jericho. Outside of that picture is dirt, buildings in a poor state, cars dumped, litter, Completely different to what you would expect. I think one of the excitements for me was to go to Qumran. Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. I know you've seen that photograph before. But the expanse of the wilderness in that area is just amazing. You sense the wilderness, its barrenness. That little hole that you see near the center of the screen is known as Cave 4. And that's where the majority of the scrolls were found. A shepherd boy threw a stone into the cave. Not out of malice, but but he was just checking to see if there were any um, animals in there that would have caused him harm. But as he threw the stone in, he heard some pottery break. And that's where the clay pots were found. You would expect it's near the Dead Sea. So that is where we went to next. Armed with trunks and plimsoll-like shoes, we walked a mile or so from the coach through commercial units offering Dead Sea 
mud massages, expensive exfoliation, lace lotions, cocktails, food, and much more down to the sea. What was ironic is that looks like a Dead Sea Scroll, but that is actually just the rules of, uh, of the Essenes. But I've got a Dead Sea Scroll copy in my office, which looks very much the same as that. At the actual site in the museum, there's nothing, there was no Dead Sea Scrolls at all to see. So, strolling down to the Dead Sea, you need shoes for two reasons. The heat of the sand and the abrasive sea mud beneath your feet. I wish someone had said to me, don't wear contact lenses. As water got into my eyes, which was extremely painful. Apologies about the photographs. You see, you walk in the water and it just feels like walking in any sea. But when courage allows you, you lean back and just put your feet up. Yes, that's me as well. You see, the mud is not found everywhere. You have to look for people who are standing while covering themselves with mud and then join them. Theoretically, you're meant to walk back to your deck chair and bake in the sun. And it was about 36, 38 degrees there. Time didn't allow us to do that, so I covered myself with mud then washed it off and wondered why my skin was stinging so much. Glancing at my body, along with the sharp mud, were minerals that had cut into my skin. So I literally had cuts here, there and everywhere. It lasted about three days. So, going around the Sea of Galilee, there's a place called Chorazin. Chorazin is mentioned in the Bible, some of you may know but it is not spoken of well. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. It's at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And as you travel from here to Capernaum, which is about two miles, you then have the Mount of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Tagba, where Jesus cooked the fish on the shore, one of the resurrection appearances. And then to Magdala, you realize how close places are. Chorazin is a town also that rejected Jesus. Its black, basalt, volcanic remains tell the story. Several of the buildings had a Stonehenge connection. It seemed quite weird. A lot of the buildings had what we're familiar with seeing. In 1926, what is called the Seat of Moses, was discovered by archaeologists. This is where the reader of the Torah, the first five books by Moses, sat. I don't know if that bloke realized he sat on Moses' seat. Matthew 26, sorry, in Matthew 23, records Jesus saying, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. 
but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move on. We follow the Ten Commandments, but Jews added another 613, known as the mitzvot. Capernaum is where Peter lived. Some 20 years ago, a Catholic priest excavated the area and discovered the ruins of the ancient city built around a synagogue. The synagogue was built upon the site of the original one. All around it were houses, small, separated by courtyards or alleyways. Don't ask me how, but Peter's house has been identified and a church built on top of it. It really looks like a spaceship. And the glass floor looks down upon to where Peter supposedly lived. A highlight for me was seeing the Sea of Galilee. It was a bit hazy, but descending down to it just brought a smile to your face. Now I know that the Sea of Galilee has reduced in size And you can see this at times on the shoreline. The shoreline is further away from certain places or buildings. But what really amazed me was how far the Mount of Beatitudes, or where the Sermon on the Mount was spoken, was from the shore. It's got to be at least a mile and a half. I just assumed it was just on the shoreline by the sea, but it wasn't. It was quite a distance. In many ways now, like in other places, there is an immaculate Catholic church set on beautiful grounds where you're just told to be quiet and move on quickly. It wasn't a place I wanted to stay in. I walked outside and imagined Jesus speaking to the crowd, the hunger of their hearts and minds, as well as stomachs. It was strange at times seeing powerboats, only one or two, with donuts pulling people along, as you do in a lot of seaside resorts. Upon visiting Tagba, where Jesus appeared to Peter after his fishing trip, cooking them breakfast on the shore, and where Jesus told Peter to look after his sheep, we ourselves embarked on a Sea of Galilee boat trip. It was just our group. There were about 10 of us. And a Union Jack was hoisted to our boat. And Christian worship songs were played as we traveled through the Sea of Galilee. I somehow found it strange listening to Elvis singing Amazing Grace. But it soon changed to Tim Hughes and others, which made things a little bit more better. Towards the end... The crew got us to dance the Jewish Hora, or Haba Nagila. A bit like our Okie but more demanding. As I recovered, I glanced at the shoreline again, imagining Jesus speaking to the disciples and travelling to the other side of the lake to avoid the crowds, this time being tourists. 
Some of you heard I got lost in the wilderness. After this tour, I stayed for two weeks in Bethlehem at the Bible College. One morning, I heard there was a boat trip to Bethany, St. George's Monastery, Jericho again, the site of the Good Samaritan Inn and the River Jordan. So along with two Kiwis staying there, we joined them. Just seeing that photograph underneath those covers are bananas. Thousands and thousands of bananas. It was great to visit Lazarus' tomb. To remember the story of of Mary and Martha at Bethany. Bethany is now a no-go area for the police. Some places are that bad. I had no idea what St. George's Monastery looked like or where it was. So I was amazed by its location and difficulty in getting there. Knowing that the tour guides were also being taught, we went down and down and down and then up and up and up. Again, 38 degrees heat. So with these tour guides being taught by the tour leader, we went to the bottom, went to the monastery, and then decided we'll head up back. We should have realized something was wrong because we waited for an hour and a half. The bus had disappeared as well. Unbeknown to us, the tour guide spoke in Hebrew to the tour guides to say that they were going to walk nine kilometers to Jericho. So it was quite a while before the bus came back. So in this intense heat with limited water, we spent some time with some Bedouin Arabs trying to sell us jewelry made from camel bones telling us that they felt sure our wives would love to have that. That's not the actual Bedouin site where we were, but that's just an example of one. Now, there are two sites where Jesus is reported to have been baptized by John. This one is the Jordan River Yardnet site. On one side, you have Israel, and on the other side, you have Jordan. And although you can't see it, there's an armed soldier on the left-hand side behind the person in white. In fact, as you walk through the car park, you're warned not to walk far because of mines. These mines are now being removed at the cost or by the Vatican paying for them to be removed. What is strange about this particular site is in the land all around the River Jordan there are purpose-built churches, Greek Orthodox, let's say Anglican, various different denominations, but they're not used. They're just built and left there, which is quite strange. we've not even really got to Bethlehem or Jerusalem but we will do next week 